This is Reset. I'm Becky Vivi, in for Sasha Ann Simons. You might know Nagin Farsad from her TED Talk about haters, or her documentary, The Muslims Are Coming, or her hosting skills, filling in for Peter Sagal on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from time to time. She's performing her new stand-up special at the Lincoln Lodge, April 15th and 16th, and she's here with us now. Welcome, Nagin. Hi! So great to be here. Hello! I'm excited to talk with you. So your event is called, quote, An Evening of Comedy from Her Mouth Hole, which I love. I love that title. Tell us a little more (laughs) about what we can expect from your material at this show. Yeah, I mean the title um has a lot of mouth hole in it but not it doesn't it's not a great indicator of content. <laughs> um I like to say that the show is kind of like stand up comedy meets PowerPoint meets ethnic lady. So I have a like a history of doing TED Talks and I decided to sort of like blow up the world my my TED Talk uh, style into a full hour and mix it in with the stand up and it's a lot about just like my life as, as being an Iranian American buzz, um, married to a black man with a Blaranian baby. Um, but I say all of that with also some charts and graphs. Yeah. Uh, and is that I think are hopefully fun. Yeah, fun. the TED Talk, uh, if you haven't seen it, I d- definitely go YouTube it. It's a, a great uh, a TED Talk about haters. It's wonderful. So can we talk a little bit? How long have you been working on, on the new material, on the jokes that people will see in this new show? Well, it's interesting because I would say, you know, I've been working on it through the pandemic, but in parts of the pandemic, as you know, comedians kind of had to take to doing Zoom comedy shows, Mm -hmm. which I don't know if you've seen a Zoom comedy show. (laughs) They're less like actual comedy and more like performance art where a group of strangers watch you slowly unravel as a human being. Uh, So those aren't, (laughs) have not been the most productive ways to develop stand-up comedy. Luckily, you know, in New York City, we were doing a lot of rooftop comedy shows. And so I was able to be, you know, like in a bitter, like cold 25 degree night uh, on a rooftop, (laughs) testing out materials uh, to to heated lamps and people shivering. Uh, But it was like the most enthusiastic people in America because they were willing to come out um, and watch comedians do their thing in such ridiculous circumstances. So, yeah, so this material has been in the works for for a while, and including the pandemic, which has just been really strange and interesting. Mm -hmm. Has it yielded some uh, pandemic-related new comedy? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think comedians struggle with the fact of, like, should we recognize that this thing happened or does nobody want to hear about it? And there's, and I don't know where you stand on that, but I feel like there's no real consensus. I've seen, it seems odd to just sort of, like, launch into your material without any recognition that the last two years have happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I'm I'm doing a nod. I'm, I'm breaking down the eras of the pandemic in a quick kind of a montage. Uh, so we're all just sort of up to speed. And, I, you know, at the kind of way that a paleontologist would mark eras mm-hmm. of the pandemic, I mark, you know, I we started with the sourdological era. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, we, we, we move on to an era of uh, useless people making noise. You know, oh, that's when boy. the Italians were singing and the New Yorkers were banging on pots and pans. Mm-hmm. You know, we learned who's essential and who's 
women essential. For example, we learned that comedians are the least essential. So that was like a personal reckoning (laughs) for me. Um, Um, I'm sure there's a great chart that goes with it as well, a PowerPoint chart. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. I won't give it away. Come to the show and you'll see um, how good I am at PowerPoint. There you go. And I know a lot of your inspiration um, comes from your family. Let's listen to a really great one. Um, This is about when your aunt from Iran visited California for the first time. So I go to California, and um, and I, I was like, oh, my God, she's never been to the U.S. We absolutely have to take her to eat a taco, right? And my mom is like, oh, that is a good idea, but how is taste taco? And I was like, lady, what do you mean how is taste taco? You've been living here for 30 years. You don't know how is taste taco? No, I don't know. And I was so mad, I was so mad. I was like, you immigrants, come to this country. And you don't try Mexican food? So, so Nikine, how does your family react when they when they hear you tell stories about them on stage? <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I mean, I get this question a lot, especially from fellow, you know, first generation children of immigrant types. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the thing that I tell them is that, well, very luckily, I live three thousand miles away from my parents, so I'm very good at hiding most aspects of my stand-up comedy life <laughs> from my parents because it is. I mean, in that, I think what you shared is even, like, a really mild version. It's like I could be talking about dating and just, like, straight-up sex or something, and no, and nobody wants their parents in the audience for that, right. immigrant or not. So it's, uh, I'd say my, my mom has always been like, oh, people are thinking, you know, think you're making fun of me. And I'm like, I am, but there's love in there, and so I think it's okay. And, you know, just trying to kind of explain to them that, that nobody is also super taking my my opinion seriously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, yeah. um, is another thing. But I, I, you know, I remember once thinking that my parents were disappointed that I became a comedian because I overheard my mom saying uh, to one of her friends over the phone, "I am disappointed Nagin is a comedian." And so I've Aww. known from a very early on that it's not the best career path. Um, and by the way, any parent should be disappointed that their child is a comedian. <laughs> like it's, we should all hope that our children are not comedians, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, so I think in that sense, they're, they're having the best response possible to my entire career okay. and all the shenanigans mm-hmm. uh, that I rope them into. Sure, sure. But you do, I mean, you do tackle some some good, important topics, and you use the term social justice comedian. Let's listen to a clip of you explaining a bit about how that works. The question is, why does social justice comedy work? Well, because first off, it makes you laugh, right? And when you're laughing, you enter into a state of openness. And in that moment of openness, a good social justice comedian can stick in a whole bunch of information, and if they're really skilled, a rectal exam. Now... So we get a little funny taste of it there. But in your own words, um, what is this kind of social justice comedy? You know, I I uh, went to 
I have a, a dual master's degree in African American studies and public policy mm. because you need both to go into comedy. And <laughs> I was a career track person. You know, I worked for the city of New York as a policy advisor. You know, I interned oh. for Hillary Clinton and oh. Charlie Rangel. I was really serious about going into politics, but comedy was just too much of a draw. Like I, I ended up, you know, going to city council meetings to present findings and stuff like that. And then I would leave in that night I would perform jokes about going to city council meetings. Oh, man, you know? I so would have loved that. Inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so at a certain point I had, I, I left to, to go into comedy full time, but I always, the draw of being a public servant was, has, has always been with me. And, you know, comedy is so self-serving, you know, it's such, it's such a, like among the fields, it is one of the more narcissistic. And so I thought if I could somehow sometimes include some of these issues, whether it's about Islamophobia or xenophobia, mm. immigrant rights, climate change, you know, banking reform, um, I, I, if I can tackle some of these things in a comedic way, I can at least sleep at night uh, occasionally for having gone into some into yeah. a profession that's seemingly so self-serving. So that's that's kind of been my my personal um, you know role with it. Yeah. Well, some might say politics is is also pretty self-serving and narcissistic. But um, you mentioned a little <laughs> bit about your comedy story. When did you switch from from that line of work to performing comedy full time? I mean, the, the, you know, I was doing comedy the entire time all mm. through high school when I was cast as Kitchen Wench, num- not number one or number two, but Kitchen Wench number three in the musical Once Upon a Mattress. It ended up being a really <laughs> seminal role for me. Uh-huh. Um, and then I was, you know, in, in college, I kept doing comedy. In grad school, I kept doing comedy. You know, I mean, I was in a really serious program and students would be like, let's get together and have a study group. And I'd be like, oh, that's cute, but I got to go downtown and do a set, you know, so I always sort of had one foot out the door, but I I was really trying to, like, to just stay the course, Um, and I ended up getting this job at the Campaign Finance Board, which is just this phenomenal campaign finance program, just an example for the entire nation of what we could do on a federal scale. And I really believed in it. And I was, you know, I I did a bunch of statistical analysis and I wrote reports and it was just, and I owned a pantsuit, you know what I mean? Wow. Um, (laughs) That's fascinating. Yeah, that's where you really believe me. But ultimately, uh, I, you know, I just, the, the, the pool was too strong and I ended up leaving and, and going into comedy after after I was maybe there for a couple of years before I left. Hmm. Nagin, I wonder how your style as a comic has changed since you started. You mentioned, you know, all the way back to high school, through college and beyond. Was your time doing the campaign finance and, and working in city council and city government, did that shift and change your style? Uh, you know, I've like from the very beginning I've been open to different mediums you know like because I you know I've made movies I wrote a book I I, you know I may do mime at some point it's unclear Mm -hmm. um and so I feel like I my my comedy style has just been to embrace every type of medium within comedy I really enjoy so many aspects of it I do think 
you know, shows like The Daily Show and stuff like that early on sort of made me realize how powerful comedy could be used uh, politically, especially, you know, in video format. So that's something that I uh, that I also embraced early on. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about your podcast um Fake the Nation, it's called, and it's where you mix humor and politics. I'm wondering if it's been difficult to find uh, find funny tropes when the news cycle has been so bleak lately, particularly through the pandemic, but especially now. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, like the last several years, I mean, my podcast uh, started during the primary season for the 2016 elections, which was already like a really crazy time to start a a political comedy podcast. And I realized very quickly that the news was so dark and everything was so loaded that my job was just to try and give give the news to people in a way that was digestible and that kept them feeling optimistic. In fact, we ended up, you know, saying we're only doing optimism so much on the show that we had t-shirts made that said we're only doing optimism. And <laughs> people would, you know, people would wear them to go volunteer as poll workers during the 2020 elections, which was another thing we were trying to get people to, to be poll workers um, because the, the pandemic rendered a lot of the older poll workers unable to work. <laughs> and so I really kind of felt my calling strongly in the last few years when things seems so down to find the silver lining, to figure out what it is we can do to help, to get some kind of personal control over the narrative. And yeah, I mean, I think, it, you know, the show is me and a rotating cast of comedians, so people like Margaret Cho and Samantha Bee. Uh, we have Neil deGrasse Tyson coming on in a couple weeks, like oh, really funny, really smart, interesting people. Um, and so I find that if you put three, usually comedians in a room, they can speak things in a way that make you feel better. Yeah, well, and as someone who works in news all day, every day, it's kind of fun to, to listen to a, a, a different version that, that makes you smile and laugh. You know, you're coming to Chicago, and I, I gathered from your Instagram that you enjoy coming to Chicago. Let's take a listen. <laughs> oh, my God, I am so excited to be going to Chicago. Chicago, where everyone is always laughing hysterically and no one has dry elbow skin. Chicago, where the gin goes down smooth and the boba goes down even smoother. Chicago, where no one uses cell phone cases and no one has a crack on their screens. So quickly, what it is? what is it like doing a show here? Um, obviously, everything you said was true, but tell us a little bit about the audience when, when you're in Chicago. Well, I mean, so I'm really lucky because my view on Chicago is heavily informed by Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. I, you know, I've, I had performed in Chicago before joining the the panelist crew at Wait, Wait, but that was the show that really brought me there on a more frequent basis. And, you know, it's just sort of every time I go there, you know, we were performing at the Chase Bank Auditorium, it would be like, I don't know how many seats are in that theater, like 700 of the most enthusiastic, wonderful people. And like half of them are just Chicagoans that are, you know, excited to support this local show. Um, And then the other half are people traveling from all around the country because they're obsessed with Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And it was just 
it's always so fun. Um, the people in Chicago are always so nice. It's a real city. I mean, coming from New York City, you know, New York City, New Yorkers are often like really judgmental mm-hmm. about other cities. Like, is it walkable? Do you need a car? <laughs> you know what I mean? All that. Yeah. And in Chicago is a real city. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and it's a really fun city. And I've had such great experiences there. So um, I knew I really wanted to be able to take my show out there. That's it for today's Reset. For more conversations about Chicago politics, news and entertainment, subscribe to this podcast and please give us a rating. It helps other listeners find us. I'm Becky Vivi, in for Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening and you can catch us back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.